Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. You know, well, most of you know, and maybe all of you, that we have been in a series on the, uh, on the parables. And uh, this week we turn to what is probably for many of us our favorite parable, which is the parable of the prodigal son. And I'm glad to see Seth is here today. Uh, Seth, I don't think anybody here would argue that you are the prodigal son. And I don't think you'd argue. And so I'm going to use you personally this morning because I want it to be very clear to everybody that uh, God has used Seth to be a wonderful encouragement to me this past year. And uh, if all heaven rejoices and if the, the father, the waiting father, threw a party, I, in preparing to preach, I have felt that really um, I have failed to party enough over Seth. And it's not patronizing to Seth to party because I'm a prodigal son. And so I'm really partying myself, and that's always good, you know. So Seth, your public property this morning, I put you on fair warning. But it's because I adore you. I know that's weird. I know the further west you go, the weirder that is. I like the beard. Yeah. So let's read scripture. And those of you that don't know Seth, uh, let me just explain that for a period of time, I was Seth's surrogate father. He lived in our home. And the, the funnest time, this will make, make it clear to you that I love Seth and he loves me. When he moved in, I took his expensive iPod and we went out in the garage and he took, what was it, a sledgehammer? He took a sledgehammer to his iPod because that was the first discipline I gave him in my home. He didn't like the music he was listening to and he kept arguing with me and I thought, okay, fine. Come on out into the garage. <laughs> and that was the end. And Seth is still angry at me over that. And I know it. <laughs> but I wouldn't take it back ever. Because Seth needed a really hard hit, and all of our parents have given us hard hits like that, you know. And so anyhow, that's how you know I love Seth, is that act of discipline, because it was very difficult for him and very difficult for me. He doesn't think it was difficult for me, but it was. All right, let's stand as we read God's word, Luke 15, 11 to 32. Now I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 of Luke 15 because you have to understand as we go into this story what has come. This is like the lost sheep, like the lost coin. This is Jesus' response to the Pharisees, the Presbyterian pastors and elders. Okay, are you with me? The scribes and Pharisees, the Presbyterian pastors and elders. This is Jesus' response to them when they're very upset that there are lowlifes in church and that Jesus hangs with them. 
Okay, does everybody making this translation in your brain? Okay. And so I'm going to read the first two verses. We'll skip to verse 11. The first two will not be up here. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him, Jesus, to listen to Jesus. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. But a better way of saying that would be, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Right? Now let's go to verse 11. And he said, this is again Jesus, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now, swine flew okay, but pigs, all right, to feed the pigs. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will go get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Which again, swine is to pigs as celebrate is to party. They began to party, okay? Now, his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost and has been found. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So what do we call this parable? Down through history, it's most often been called the parable of the prodigal son. And so, if you're going to understand that, you need to know that prodigal means spendthrift, prodigal means wastrel, prodigal means partying animal. 
but that's not really what it means. It's just parting animal is something a prodigal would do. So prodigal is just that you're just like spending lots of money and you're not being careful to save and then you put it on the credit card. Prodigal, all right? And so this story mostly has been called the prodigal son. Then Helmut Thielicke, a, a German pastor, wrote a book called The Waiting Father. And it's on the parables and the title of the book comes from the, the the, the number one chapter, which is about the prodigal son, and Helmut Thielicke calls it the waiting father. And so you can see how this parable could be called the prodigal son, it could be called the waiting father. And then Tim Keller is a, is a pastor in New York, and Tim Keller, the thing that you know most about Tim Keller, actually, it's probably the most noteworthy thing about Tim Keller, is he's constantly preaching against the moralism and pride of us, conservative reform people. And so he calls this, I don't know whether he calls it or not, but what everybody knows is his constant teaching against what? The elder brother. And so every time you preach the word, you have to apply it to the people that you're talking to, right? So that, for instance, when... uh, Uh, when the Ethiopian eunuch was reading Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 had to be applied to him. And so you apply it, this text, to the person that you're preaching to. And so the question for us today is, which should, should the title be for us? Should it be the prodigal son? Should it be the waiting father? Or should it be the elder brother? So if I were to say, how many of you need to hear the story of the prodigal son? Because that's what you need. I want to ask you to raise your hands, but there are a number of you here that need to hear about the prodigal son. If I were to ask you, how many of you need to hear about the waiting father? What kind of person would need to hear about the waiting father? It would be somebody who needs to repent, but is timid. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It would be somebody who has never had a good father. If I were to ask you whether you need to hear about the elder brother, my guess is there are a lot of us here that need to hear the elder brother. But if you think back over our series on the parables, you know that a number of our sermons have really been preached to the elder brother. And so I'm not going to focus on the elder brother today. I mean, the guy's boring. You know, he's not in the, in the party dancing. And why would you waste time on a dude like that? He's outside. Let him be outside, okay? We're all done with the elder brother, all right? So now let's deal with the prodigal son and the dad, okay? Beautiful, beautiful story. Let's go through the text, uh, starting with verse uh, 11. And he said a man had two sons. Now that's the first thing that's noteworthy. Back before contraception, doesn't it seem strange that a man only had two sons? It is kind of interesting, isn't it? Probably some of them had died. The mortality rate used to be, what, a, a third to a quarter 
before penicillin, before antibiotics? Well, this particular man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Now, that's interesting. It's the younger brother that does that. Now, doesn't that make sense? Mary Lee, my wife, believes in birth order. And we were very happy to be able to pronounce you suited for each other if you decide that you're interested because the best marriages are what? They're, they're like either an only daughter or an oldest daughter with a spoiled son. Right? So that means youngest son. <laughs> How many of you are a youngest? Okay, don't take offense at me. But all of you were spoiled. And even if you weren't, your siblings think you were anyhow. All right? And your father will argue. And so it's the youngest son who is into being irresponsible. What does he think? The youngest son thinks that the rules and the boundaries and the laws, the parameters, the expectations, everything about his father's home is bondage. And he wants to be done with it. He's sick of it. And so he's going to take his destiny in his hands and he's going to have what? Freedom. Right? And what he needs for freedom is his father's wealth. Now, this used to be that you had to do this honestly. Today, we call it college. (laughs) That just came to me. (laughs) But I mean, don't, don't you think that's true? I don't know. You'll have to think about it a little bit. It's probably not true, but it sounds good. And so he went to his dad and he said, Dad, I want my part of the inheritance. And this indicates that there was some understanding about what belonged to him when his dad would pass on. But he moved the schedule up a little bit. And it's interesting, I never noticed it until I was preparing for this morning. What comes next is, watch this, Um, The next sentence is, so he divided his wealth between them. I've never noticed that before. He forced there to be a division of his dad's wealth, not just that he took the money, but also that his his dad divided the money and gave it to his elder brother. I'd never noticed that before. So when you come to the end and the dad says, everything that I have is yours, there has been a transfer of wealth, not just to the youngest son, but to the oldest son. Okay? So he divided his wealth between the two of them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. Now, this is interesting because he didn't leave immediately. You know, probably Norman Rockwell painted some picture, but you know the scene of this kid with a bandana with his earthly belongings in it and it's on a stick on his shoulder and he got mad and he's running away and he gets to the picket fence of the neighbor next door and she comes out and feeds him some candy or cocoa and takes him back home, right? This was not a case of him having a temper tantrum and running away from his parents, getting in his pickup and driving away. This is a kid who has examined where he is, what the expectations and rules are, And he makes a principial decision that he wants freedom. 
And so he says to his father, I want my inheritance. Then he waits. Think about this. His dad gives him the money. He waits. He's still in the home. And then after a little bit of time, he puts it all together and he leaves. Can you imagine the father in those days, that intervening period of time? Okay. And so the son gathered everything together, verse 13, and went on a journey into a distant country. What is a, different, what is a distant country to the Mideast, to Israel? A distant country is like 100 miles. And so what would it be for us? It would be Terre Haute. That's where he'd go. Right? The idea of going to South Africa or to San Francisco, right? It just wouldn't even enter into his mind. So if he was from, uh, if he was from Bedford and he was gay, he'd move to Bloomington. And if all he wanted was heterosexual dr- drugs and alcohol, he'd go to Terre Haute, right? And it's important that you keep this in mind because the scale of the Holy Land is tiny. And if I had thought about doing it, I would have brought to you, I have a map of the Holy Land taken, it's not a map, but it's a picture taken from a satellite. And I can hold it up and probably only the front row, but you could actually see the airport my wife landed in this morning from space. Because that's how small the dimensions of the Holy Land are. You can see the Tel Aviv Ben Gurion airport from space. And here's, once you get off the plane, you can either go to Tel Aviv or you can go to Jerusalem, take your pick. They're both about the same distance. Jerusalem a little bit further. It's all like the metropolitan Chicago area. That's, that's what it's like. From Merrillville up to Libertyville. Okay? That's the Holy Land. So he went to a distant land. Now, why is it saying a distant land? Well, we'll keep going. All right? He went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. And we don't really have to spend time talking about loose living, right? It's boring. If you ever want to know what it is, just drive down to Kirkwood or up North Walnut on probably any night. Maybe not Monday night, all right? Now, when he had spent everything... A severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So, alcohol, drugs, women, the Indy 500, country music, concerts, loose living. Eh, come on, admit it. He blew all his dough on that crud and Starbucks. And he began to be impoverished. And that's what happens when you go to country music concerts. (laughs) And that's why all their songs about getting your money back, your car back, your wife back, and your pickup back, and your dog. So he's poor now. He's blown it all, and he's poor. And you all know what happens when you're poor. Most of the friends vanish. So he's lonely. 
But this is a most excellent country without a safety net. Do you see that? A famine hits the country. And so there's not all this wealth to transfer. And so there's nothing to keep him from suffering God's discipline. I just die. And I shouldn't go there, but I'm going to. I just die over the rebellion of our world trying to protect people from God's discipline. It is everywhere. Nobody believes in suffering being God's providence anymore. I got a, uh, an email from a nurse who works at a community uh, health agency where uh, a woman under her care wants to kill herself and it's in Washington and so she has a legal right to do it. And so the pharmacy has prescribed the suicide potion and she's writing and asking, um, what do I do? If I bring it in to our building, then I have to explain to all of the nurses and techs and everybody what it is, what its purpose is, how can I possibly do this without participating in the murder of a human being? And this is the world we live in. And of course, you know that her job is up for grabs. And what's the basis of this whole thing? The basis of this whole thing is that we do not believe that human suffering is redemptive. We do not believe that consequences are ordained by a creator who loves his creation. We do not believe that a prodigal son being reduced to feeding pigs is salubrious. In other words, good. Helpful. And, you know, the reason I pause here is it is so depressing to see that all of our authorities, all of them, from the church to the state, all of them, your mama, all of our authorities are in conspiracy to keep you from suffering the discipline of the God who loves you. Do you understand this? It's so important that you get this today. Great inflation. Everywhere we look is the subversion of discipline by God. The discipline that God gives us is his love, calling us to himself. The the wussification of preaching. Great inflation, the wussification of preaching You know what I mean by the wussification, where there's no call to repent, there's no preaching of the law, it's just God loves you and has a wonderful wife for your life, or a plan for your man, or something something nice. You know? Velveteen rabbit sermons. 
And then you come to the end of life and you come, so you've got contraception because that allows you to fornicate and to be cold to your wife and not to have to think about children and having to provide more and all this. And then you come to the end of the life and guess what? Surprise, surprise. The first generation that killed their unborn children in the womb are now the first generation that is going to be massively wiped out by uh, euthanasia. And then in my presbytery, we approve a man who says he does not believe that we should keep people eating and drinking if they are in uh, a permanent... Uh, yeah, I mean, do you really want to say vegetable about a human being that bears the image of God? I mean, I hate to think what a person that says vegetative would have to say about, uh, what's the name of the little baby that was just born? Aaron. Yeah, Aaron Charles. Do you get my point? If you're going to compare an older person who's senile and has had a stroke with a newborn baby who is more commending of himself to us sophisticates? I mean, who is it who has a greater ability to speak to us, to control his bowels, to feed himself? Are you with me? Do you realize that Terry Schiavo has a be- had a better communication than this newborn Aaron that just came into our congregation? But it doesn't matter. They're at the end of life. Too much health care money is spent taking keeping them alive. And so what we do is, whether it's grades at school, whether it's bankruptcy, whether it is uh, the safety net, the social welfare safety net, okay, whether it is sermons, discipline of, of, of elders, whether it is euthanasia, on every single level, what we are saying to God is, You will not discipline me. You will not. You will not give me the consequences. I will elect a president who will protect me from any consequences of my foolish behavior. You know how I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet? Well, I'm going to be a prophet right now. Do you know what we're seeing going on in America right now? What we're seeing is we just had health care made a basic human right. The next thing that will be a basic human right is what? There's only one thing left. You taking your father's inheritance and spending it on college. That will be the next thing. College will be a basic human right. And we will see a nationalization of loans, of everything connected with education. Because it's impossible to sustain it on a personal, familial basis, just like it was with healthcare. And so then you will have a right to party for four, five, six years. And to be a child as an adult. Now, listen, does anybody, anybody here think that that won't happen? No. That's who we are. But this son lived, look, in a time when a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. (laughs) 
Now, you know, probably never does anybody preach this text this way, but listen. What does it mean to be impoverished? Would you please go back to the situation in time that Jesus is telling this story? The situation in time when he was telling this story did not mean what it meant for us to be impoverished. You want me to tell you what it means for us to be impoverished? It means that you can keep your thermostat at 85 degrees. You can have a, a, a what, 45-inch television screen. Uh, the utility companies will not turn off your power. You will have enough money to pour endless dollars into the lottery. Come on. You'll have your cigarettes, you'll have your alcohol, and you certainly will have your food. And you'll have more food because the woman that you're living with who isn't your wife is on wick. And so you'll be able to use some of the food stamps because your wife is getting extra butter and cheese and, I forget, orange juice? What do you get with wick? And there will be public transportation. And if you get arrested, you will have a public defender. Come on, guys. We have no, we have no, we have no concept of what poverty was in this parable. None. Because we live in a society which is intentionally removing every consequence from wickedness. And so, when we read this parable and we see how the story ends, we are very happy for this young man that he didn't live today. You see this? Societies don't become decadent by taking a vote. They just become decadent by citizens having a pact with their leaders that the leaders will pander to them. And so it's a massive bribe. You know, we pride ourselves on not being a corrupt government like Nigeria or like Kenya, you know, where they bribe. Isn't that awful? And in America... (laughs) (laughs) It's the most massive bribe system. You know, if you won't discipline me, then I'll elect you. Will you not discipline me? No, I won't discipline. Okay, I'll elect you. Now, you're thinking, where does this come from in the text? And so I'm going to make it obvious to you. Okay, look at what it says. A severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. And you say, well, that's not there. And I say, okay, let's keep going, all right? So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. What about unemployment? You know, what about interdependent children? What about selling plasma? And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now listen, no matter what you think of poverty in the United States of America, it will never reduce a Jew to working in a pigsty. 
I don't care how bad off the Jew in this country is, he will never work in a pigsty. Why? Well, because Jews saw pigs and dogs on the same level, utterly abhorrent. So here's this uh, covenant child, all right? Here's this Jew, people of the book, God's special people. He's in a distant land with foreigners, goyim, all right? And now he is working for a man who's a pig farmer. And if you know anything about farmers, pig farmers are on the low. There's a pecking order among farmers. Pig farmers are down there. Why? Have you ever smelled a pig farm? A real pig farm. All right. So here's this guy. He's reduced to working for a foreigner, a pig farmer foreigner, and then the pig farmer foreigner does not send him in his pickup truck to go get some meal or grain or to the co-op. But he sends him out to the pigs and he feeds the pigs. And that's the safety net. Do you understand why I'm saying this? You have to understand this kid got the consequences of his sin because he lived in a sane time when people believed that these consequences were good. And then look at this. It got worse. He would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. If you take Jesus literally in what he's saying, he's saying that this kid got to the point where he was hungry for the food of the pigs but it would have been theft for him to eat the food of the pigs. All right, let's keep going. In other words, what I'm trying to say is it's inconceivable that anybody in this country would ever get to this point. Do you see this? And then you have to ask yourself, is that good or bad? I say it's bad. It's not because I don't believe in compassion from the government. It's not because I don't like to pay taxes. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with me believing that God in his kindness disciplines us and that our suffering is his call to us to repent and turn. All right, now let's keep going. But when he came to his senses, isn't it interesting? That's how it puts it. He came to his senses. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden his ears heard, his eyes saw, his fingers touched, his nose smelled. Although I'm sure his nose probably helped him. (laughs) Okay? What it means is that he began to see what he saw, to hear what he heard, right? It's not that everything started working. It's that he began to see and hear and feel what he was seeing and feeling. Okay? So he, began, he came to his senses, and he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger? Again, no safety net. You see this. He's dying of hunger. And so what does he do? What he does is he says, I'm dying with I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And so he's dying of hunger. All of a sudden, he wakes up. He comes to his senses. Even the slaves in my father's house have food to eat. 
I'm going to go back and I'm going to say, Father, um, I was foolish with my inheritance and I've wrung out and I'm wondering, you know, would it be possible for me to be one of your slaves? Father, uh, you know, I have realized what it is to be uh, um, to suffer systemic oppression. And, and to be a part of an oppressed class of persons. Uh, I have to tell you that I suffered terrible prejudice in that foreign land. I think my, that man that let me work for him, I think he intentionally, knowing I was a Jew, sent me to slop the pigs. But there you have it, and I'm hungry. I mean, listen. You think about how you would approach God right now and ask yourself the question whether the word but would be in your repentance. And if you want to know whether or not it would be, you just look at how you speak to your wife when you've sinned against her. You ever single that word but out carefully and watched it? I'm sorry, but. And there's not a, there's not a, there's not a, there's not anything of that in this son. This son is unconditional surrender. And I'm telling you, you come to God, it has to be unconditional surrender. God doesn't want your approval. What he wants is your worship and your repentance. He wants all the glory. He doesn't want you quibbling over details as you try to sort of work the system in such a way that you can save your prey. And if that's what you want to do, you cannot repent because repentance is unconditional surrender. You notice what he says, Father, I have sinned against Heaven. And in your sight. Who does he start with? He starts with God. Isn't that interesting? Where else does scripture show us the same thing? You would think that a younger son who realizes how he's hurt his father, right? You would think that he would start with his father knowing how offended and hurt his father was, right? But he doesn't do that. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And you realize that every time that you hurt your father, your mother, your teacher, your judge, your governor, your pastors, your elders, your tightest two women, every single time, it is God that you are attacking. There is no rebellion that doesn't start with a rebellion against God the Father. And that's why he starts, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And David did the same thing in Psalm 51. David said, against, remember, thee and thee alone have I sinned and committed this transgression. Okay? Now listen. Because I have a navy blue blazer and khakis and I'm up here talking with a cordless mic. You might think 
that what I spoke of earlier about the safety net and social welfare and nationalized health care and euthanasia and all this stuff is political, but it's not political. I despise politics. But what I want you to ask yourself right now is, in what ways has God been working to wake you up to your sin and your rebellion? And you've resisted it. And you have used all kinds of devious means to escape saying, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Our culture loves victims. But our culture never admits that the victimhood it considers priceless is the person that shakes his fist in the face of God and says, how dare you? And every single time you take the circumstances of your life that you don't like and you're bitter about them, you're resentful, and you refuse to come to God, every single time that is rebellion against God. Don't trivialize God by pointing to your father. He's the hound of heaven. And he goes after us. You know, you talk to those of us who are prodigal sons, who God disciplined, and there are aspects of his discipline I don't ever want to tell you about. I wish that they were me slopping pigs. God is God. And he will not share his glory with anyone. And when he disciplines us, it is horrible. Horrible for us to look at our sin. <laughs> you know, it's horrible. You ask, why am I laughing? And I say, it's because I'm from Philadelphia. You know, this is a geographical thing. And so look at your sin. And look at the consequences. Really look. And then ask yourself, can you face God with your sin? And the answer is no. And then ask yourself, can you face God with your repentance? (laughs) Now, how would you know whether or not you can face God with your repentance? Well, you just look at the story. Well, he was yet a long way off. Now, what had the son done to earn his father hugging him at that point? Did you notice that the son had not given his little spiel to his dad yet? Did you see that? While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And then he he gives his father, I have sent. Now, when his father ran and embraced him, what did he look like? He looked pretty bad, didn't he? And what did he smell like? 
This was not in the day when you took daily showers or baths or once a week or something. Water was precious. And so I guarantee you that son smelled like the pigs. And he was filthy from his travels. We knew he was dying of starvation back when he started out. You imagine the condition this kid was in. And his father hugs him. And then his father says what? He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And so he got up and came to his father and said that. But the father, verse 22, said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and party. Party. For this son of mine was what? Dead, dead, dead. Dead in his trespasses and sins. Now here's what I want to end with. You think about this son coming to his father. He's come to his senses. He has this plea that he's put together. He follows through on it and gives the plea to his father. But the father short circuits it because the father hugs him while he's, you know, while he's a long way off. He sees him. His heart of compassion. Okay. Now, do you believe that God is a God of compassion and love? And that's the stupidest thing to say in America today because if there's one thing everybody knows, it's that if they believe there's a God, God is love. But I'm not talking about that love because that love is pathetic. That love is the love of a doting grandmother, which is pathetic. You did nothing to earn it. You're her flesh and blood, and so she loves you. That's it. This says that while the sun was still a long way off, now you can use that to refer to geography. It was down the road, you know, his dad was looking from the farm and saw the sun down the road, you know. You can also look at it spiritually. While the sun was still a long way off. Now, those of you who have repented and turned to God and believed in Jesus Christ and his death, would you describe to me the moment that you turned? Were you real close to God at that point or were you still a long way off? Well, at the time you thought you were real close to God. But the older you get, the more you see, what? That you were still a really long way off. And how many of you who have been in Christ now for decades would describe yourself right now as what? Still a really long way off. And so what does the father do? He says, son, hey son, stop, stop. Go out in the fields and work under your brother. And I'll watch you for a while. And I'll just take, take the temperature of your repentance. Because you heard me bad. And I'll let your brother take the temperature of your repentance. 
And then you better learn to say the word sovereign and providence and grace. But grace is easy to say. You just have to learn how to say it 20 times quickly. It's amazing how stingy and resentful and uh, suspicious and untrusting and uh, nasty we are about other people's repentance. When God is so merciful, so quick, so impetuous. with our repentance. I was still a long way off. And the rest of his life, he grew in his repentance. And that's all the Christian life is. We grow in our repentance. We don't get somehow to a point where we're okay. (laughs) You know, how many of you are okay? And it's a joke, right? Right? Everybody going to agree that's a Christian. All right, now, I told you one last thing, and I lied. I didn't lie. I meant well at the time. My wife says it's a lie because she says I always lie about that kind of stuff. So I just lied to you, okay? And she's not here to glare at me, so. But, you know, Paul was always saying, finally, and then half the book came. So I have some precedent, okay? Now listen, one last thing. Did you ever think about the fact that when the prodigal decided to come home to his father, that the prodigal had a lease and he had to give two weeks' notice and he had friends that were buds, drinking buds, that he couldn't just pull out of sharing the rent and... He'd taken out a student loan and needed to finish the semester. And what would people back home think if he lost this and didn't do that? In other words, did you ever think of all the encumbrances that he had that would have kept him from repenting? Are you with me? There were all kinds of obligations that would have kept him from repenting. Are you with me? Okay. And so, and so I love Seth. So we go out and we meet with Seth and God's just given him repentance, the gift, because it's a gift from God. But Seth has all these encumbrances in Terre Haute. And he's in anguish to know how to deal with them because he doesn't want to deal unfaithfully with people that he has been sharing his life with, right? And so he doesn't know what to do. And so he's talking to his dad and I'm there. And... We tell him what? We tell him, Seth, you pray and ask God what you should do. Now, I'm going to get part of this wrong, Seth. But basically, Seth prayed and God told Seth, basically, I think, it would be fair to say, run, right? Is that fair? And not run two weeks from now when you've given two weeks notice, right? Right? but run right now, 
right? And so you did run right then, right? And Seth was very concerned about how his roommates, who had said to him when he moved into, well, I, I can't tell you some of this because um, I just want to say that his roommates were unbelievably kind and encouraging to Seth. Right, Seth? Don't use excuses of your loved ones and your friends and your husband and your wife and all this other stuff. You deal with God when God calls you. You don't deal with him when your father or mother wants you to deal with him. When your wife. You deal with him now. And you repent. And you can trust that God will meet you as this father met his prodigal son. Because the Bible tells us in Psalm 103, what? He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. It says, like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him, for he knows our frame that we are made. Of dust. Of dust. And that's the best of us. We're just dust. And so why stand on pretense? It says stupid. You're dust. Repent. Turn to God. He knows our frame that we're made of dust. He'll receive you. And so you hold up your arms and say, Papa. That's what you do. And then there will be a party. And we will party with you. Okay, it's time for us to eat at the Lord's table, remembering what he's done for us. And this is a small taste of the party that there will be in heaven. If the elders would come forward, please.